Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, here in Nashville, Tennessee. And today I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Jason Dusing. Dr. Dusing serves as the academic provost and associate professor of historical theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a prolific writer, a speaker. His work appears in uh, academic journals, and he writes frequently for places like the Gospel Coalition. Uh, he's also the editor of the Journal for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And his upcoming book is very interesting. It's called Seven Summits in Church History. And so we're going to talk about church history, about the evangelical movement, about his work on figures like Carl Henry, uh, and about his unique conversion experience and his pathway to, to being a church history professor. Before we begin this conversation, however, I want to remind you of our upcoming event in Washington, D.C. this January, January 21st and 22nd. It's coming up pretty quickly here. This is the first major pro-life conference in conjunction with the March for Life. And so our desire is to really mobilize evangelical young people, pastors, churches, to really make a statement for the sanctity of human life and also get equipped to be a champion for life in your community. And so if you're a listener of the Way Home podcast, there's a special discount, 20% discount if you use the coupon code WAYHOME. So what you have to do is go to my website, danieldarling.com, click on the podcast page, and there'll be a link there for registration. Once you get there, you can use this coupon code and get 20% off. Hope to see you there in Washington, D.C. But for now, let's join our conversation with Dr. Jason Deason. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Jason Deason. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast. It's great to be here. So I want to talk to you about a lot of things. First of all, just, you know, you're a kind of historian, you love historical theology, you're a provost at a seminary, I've been at Southwestern, now you're at Midwestern. But before we talk about history, maybe history of Southern Baptists, I want to talk about you and kind of how you developed a love for for this and, 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 and wanted this to be a kind of a life mm-hmm. calling. Were you always interested in theology and history in your growing up years? Was there a kind of a turning point where you said, you know, I'd, I'd like to pursue this and make this kind of my... My calling. Sure. No, I love love to talk about that. To to kind of answer that is to tell a little bit of the story of my conversion and trust in Christ. I'm a Episcopalian kid who grew up in mm. the suburbs of Houston and uh, trusted Christ when I went to college at Texas A and M University. Mm. So you know I'm going to work that in yes. one way or another. Well, <laughs> and, yeah. And as Philip, my boss, would tell me, like pretty much everybody's lost until they go to AM. That's right? right. Well, and literally that's true for me. Um, <laughs> but the folks around me that led me to Christ were faithful members of a Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I was entered into that tradition and found a home there. And people who loved me and cared for me and discipled me and mentored me and mm-hmm. and then helped me think through a call to ministry and encouraged me to look at seminaries. And, and that's how I ended up at Southeastern Seminary in the mid-1990s. So... So that is my background um, from Episcopalian to really sort of as a backdoor mm-hmm. way into, into a Baptist church, Southern Baptist church, gives you that there really was no sort of foundation in terms of this is what you've always been and who you mm-hmm. must be. So the way I describe my seminary experience was I showed up at Southeastern Seminary, a fairly young believer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the metaphor I used was like a crumpled up piece of paper, frankly, that, mm. that I had. I was saved. I had all I needed for life and godliness. I was working in a path towards sanctification. Mm-hmm. 
but God used that that formal theological education as a hot iron to sort of iron out all those wrinkles. Mm-hmm. And some of that was doctrinal too, in terms of here, here's where things go, here's how. So, and and church history played a huge part in that mm-hmm. because growing up in the context, I had all these questions: where do denominations come from? Why, why yeah. do people think this? All these kinds of things. And my church history professor, David Puckett, Southeastern Seminary, taught my church history one class. The section I took was Tuesday, Wednesday at 7.30 a.m. He taught the same class again, a second section on Thursday, Fridays at 7.30 a.m. And God was using that class so immensely in my life that I actually, for the first time in my academic career, went to class when I didn't have to go. So I would go, to I, would, yeah, I would go to my section Tuesday, Wednesday, then I would go listen again wow. for Thursday, Friday. Wow. And so this, this, was, this was a unique thing. So up until this point, you know, my family, everyone would tell me I'm left brain, you need to be an engineer. But right mm-hmm. about the time of my conversion, I don't know if my brain changed or whatever, but really developing, actually know a more right brain and more thinking abstractly about these kinds of things. And really at seminary, embracing the st- study of historical theology or church history as a, as a vehicle mm-hmm. for really understanding theology and these doctrines. So immensely first in my own life. This then developed for a love for Baptist history because giving my own testimony, I'm realizing actually this whole tradition of Baptist is made up of people just like me, especially mm-hmm. as you look back into 17th century England. All those people were what? Church of England, Anglican, or what we call in America mm-hmm. Episcopalians who got saved and then came out of that after studying the Bible, finding churches that were trying to follow the Bible as best they could, a component of that is believers, baptism. I was like, I'm reading my testimony over and over again as the more I study these people, I've actually found a tradition, I found a home. So, mm. so part of it was that path, God picking me up, placing me on another metaphor, this Southern Baptist ship. As I tell my students, there are many ships in the evangelical ocean all heading in a Great Commission direction. The ship he picked me up and put me on was the mm-hmm. ship called Southern Baptist. And no, it's not perfect. Yes, it's enormous. Um, there are things that can be improved and efficient. Sometimes the folks on deck seven are arguing with the people on deck six. <laughs> uh, but if you've been placed on that boat, then your job is to to work to try to make it and improve it and help it sail even faster in a Great Commission direction. And so that's where he's placed me and where he's put me. So developing a love for that and seeing that played mm-hmm. out in my own life and then mirrored with local church experience. Yeah, that's some of the beginnings of how I developed an appreciation for historical theology. It is really amazing, you know, that, that sort of time period in your life where you're in college and then maybe going into seminary where you're just really finding your interests, right, and and kind of God directing you. I, I want to talk about uh, Southern Baptist life kind of in the broader context of evangelicalism, which is in a broader context of, you know, Christian history, you know, if you start mm-hmm. kind of widening the, the scope. I guess, first of all, talking about, you know, the, the rise of... Uh, of, of Baptists, you know, in, in the last several centuries, you know, what does it have to do with sort of the American experiment? The, the two aren't totally wedded together, but somewhat, right, in terms of where we are today. And so maybe first of all, for younger younger evangelicals who might just look at, have one idea of what Southern Baptists are, maybe talk briefly about the Southern, the, the Baptist contribution, I guess, to the to church history, mm-hmm. which could be several books, I'm sure. Sure. But. Sure. Well, the... The people called Baptists, again, we would affirm as a Southern Baptist, as the metaphor I just used, it's mm-hmm. one tradition in a sea of several traditions heading in a Great Commission direction. So it's not mm-hmm. the only or the exclusive or the best, but historically, these have been people who have been motivated and convicted by an allegiance to Scripture to the degree that they're willing to 
carry out those convictions and what they understand specifically about what the New Testament, how it orders local churches, mm-hmm. they're going to do that even if it means forming their own tradition. And mm-hmm. so you, you see that sort of popping up over and over again throughout the centuries in terms of following the basic Protestant theology umbrella coming out of the Reformation, but then taking that Reformation for, further and far as forming local mm-hmm. churches outside of a, especially a state church structure. So you have oftentimes the colloquial expression is Baptists are people of the book. Yeah. And not that there aren't other traditions that are also, but typically following the Bible as far as they can take it, as far as in the terms of the doctrine of the church. This has played out in a a huge cry for the separation of church and state early mm-hmm. in England and, and even before that. And then also in this country, advocating for when this country is being formed, that no, the structures need to be in place where there is religious liberty. So you... Yeah, if you talk about distinctives, it's people mm-hmm. of the book, religious liberty. You combine that with a, a very healthy and zealous attitude towards evangelism and missions, uh, dating back to the mm-hmm. mid-18th century with William Carey advocating right. that Baptist churches don't need to be just looking internally, but actually taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That playing out in this country in the 19th century with Adonai Judson and the formation of an American mm-hmm. board for foreign missions, precursor to our own international mission board. So you have... People of the book, separation of church and state, religious liberty, evangelism, and missions is sort of core, and then focused on you know local church people. That's kind of been the tradition um, on up until the present day. So that's very compatible with broader evangelicalism, mm-hmm. but it's a more narrow uh, tradition. So next week at Midwestern Seminary, where I teach, we're going to have a conference on the future of the SBC. It's a conference mm-hmm. once every three years. The paper I'm going to be presenting and discussing is this idea of of ecclesiological conservationism, which means we can rally around core essentials of the gospel, yes, mm-hmm. and we should do that. But when we start talking about it at a local church level, who, who can be members of a local church or what churches are we going to plant, you got to have another conversation about what's essential for yeah. ecclesiology, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where Baptists, I think, provide a voice to evangelicals to say, here's how we carve that out. We're not, again, we're not the only one. We're not saying you're not saved if right. you're not in another tradition. But this is the way in which we do that at a local church level. I, I think what's interesting when I talk to evangelicals broadly is um, I, I don't think people really uh, appreciate the contribution Southern Baptists have made to 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 evangelicalism and also just to to the wider body of Christ on issues like religious liberty. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that when we talk about today, we kind of almost take for granted, like, oh yeah, separation of church and state. But really, when you study church history, right? I mean, this is kind of a fairly new idea in church history, is it not? This idea of religious liberty, kind of a, a new idea and a, we would argue a good idea. Right. It's In some ways, it's the natural outworking of the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin were headed in that direction. Their, their annoying Anabaptist brethren sort of pulled them even <laughs> yeah. further, you know, faster than they wanted to go. Yeah but kind of planted the seeds for actually for this to continue to exist mm-hmm. beyond our current generation. You've recovered the gospel for your generation, yes. Mm-hmm. How are you working to make sure that that gospel gets passed on to your grandchildren? Well, the way you do that is you actually purify the church as a whole. You restructure mm-hmm. the church so that it can naturally set up to pass that baton. So you see precursors there in the Reformation, but then fast-forwarding even into this country, the, the great Baptist pastor in America, John Leland, yes. was an advocate for this, even in, in the rise of Jefferson's administration. Mm-hmm. 
and and advocating for it and sort of playing for it to the to the point that Jefferson then takes it a hold and makes it a part of his DNA. This idea of separation of church mm-hmm. and state and religious liberty. You have the famous um, story that that has really been glorified by that great television show, The West Wing. The yes, whole, the whole big block of cheese, right? The best, the best show, show ever. Created. The best show ever created. So yes. you have that big block of cheese illusion. Of course, Sorkin takes it and makes it references it to an event in Andrew Jackson's administration. Mm-hmm. But actually, the first big block of cheese ever to be brought was was sent by John Leland mm. to Jefferson as an as a statement of appreciation from New England Baptists for his stance for religious mm. liberty. And just talking about religious liberty a little bit, you know, sometimes I'll talk to well-meaning pastors or church leaders will say, oh, why do we have to get involved in this? You know, I just want to go preach the gospel and bring people to Christ, which we are, we are so much for. But religious liberty is paving the way for that, right? I mean, it's, um, it's, it's sort of clearing the brush so people can do that. And I, I wonder, I mean, God could choose to work in any way, but if you don't have those religious liberty arguments in the colonial period and the forming of the country, do you have the massive missions movement that comes later? No, I think that's a great question, and, and they are directly tied to it. So a society doesn't have to have religious liberty for the gospel to advance. Right. We know it's going to advance anyway, and it's, and it's flourishing in countries mm-hmm. where, today where there is no religious liberty. But in the sense of ease for proclamation of the gospel and mm-hmm. the freedom for mission boards, absolutely we need a society where all options are on the table. And it's rooted in the fact that, that the Bible does not portray Christianity as a, as a faith system that can be coerced. We can't force someone to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. So why would we want to create a society in which they're forced to become a Christian? Mm-hmm. We believe the best society is, is an open society where they can't examine right. and, and do those things, you know, come to positions of faith on their own. Definitely, it's, it's related to that. The back end, though, though, which we don't often think of, is that uh, in any country, in any society, one day, um, religious liberty has a time stamp on it. it mm-hmm. There will be an end to religious liberty. We... We fear that happening in our own country now, perhaps, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit too much, but in the ultimate eschatological in yes. time sense, religious liberty will end. We know from Philippians 2 that at some point, every knee will bow and every tongue will mm-hmm. confess that Jesus is Lord. There's no religious liberty then. Right. So there is an evangelistic missionary component to religious liberty mm-hmm. as well, is that we want to promote the freedom of religion for as long as possible because we know there's coming a day when there'll be no more chance, there'll be no more tomorrows, there'll be no more second. Today is the day of salvation. So we're advocates for religious liberty now because we care about and love people and love lost people and want them to come to Christ while they still can because there mm-hmm. will come a point when the judge is going to roll up this world like a garment and uh, start over, and we see that coming. That, that's such a, such a great word. I, I want to talk about history, uh, church history. You teach uh, historical theology teach history, you're fascinated by it. Why would you encourage even just lay people to kind of get to know and study church history? Is it, and what, I guess part one, and part two, what effect does that have on someone's faith? Uh, So I'll I'll give you, for instance, I, I feel like sometimes in the evangelical movement, parts of it are so unmoored from history, right? So like you would, you go into a worship service and you you get no indication that this is, uh, you know, the church has been around for 2,000 years. There's a body of truth that's been passed from generation to generation. Almost like we, you know, kind of invented Jesus today or something. So talk about the importance, I think, of, of knowing church history and why it matters. Well, on an individual level, for the individual believer, mm-hmm. there, aside from the Bible itself, I don't think there's any greater source of inspiration and encouragement that mm-hmm. can come. And oftentimes it's surprising that it comes, but it, in many ways we shouldn't be surprised because it's coming from people whose lives are fixed in the past. Mm-hmm. They're no longer living 
we can examine them and, and pull them out and actually find that, no, we're not alone. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. we're alone in our office building, or maybe we're alone mm-hmm. in this country as a missionary, but we're not alone when we look at the panoply of all of Christian history, mm-hmm. that actually what I'm doing is the same thing people have done. So there's an encouragement component. Um, the great 20th century expositor preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, "There's no p- the best preparation for prayer, I often feel, is the reading of history. Mm. So th- there's a sense in which the reading of biography, especially, which I'm a huge advocate mm. of using biography as a way to, to learn history, can stir and help. Um, it humbles in that sense. It, it strengthens. It edifies. It, you know, these types of things. So it brings things to life. It you know, can help come alongside. So there's a rooting, I guess, is what mm-hmm. I'm getting at. This, the study of history helps you, like I said, you crumple up a piece of paper. It helps iron out those wrinkles and say, here's where this goes. Here's the, where's this fit? Here's how you fit into the scheme of history on this planet at this time. Um, that can be an encouraging thing and also can be an appropriately humbling thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, to do that, we have to admit what we don't know and then, and then go find out those things. So it's not mere assembly of facts. It's using those things as, as um, an, like an IV injection, you know, filling mm-hmm. you with fluids that you didn't know you need, but once you have, um, you, you're never the same. In, in some ways, too, doesn't it um, broaden your perspective of the world as you see it today, right? Right. So talking to young people who look, kind of look around and say, oh, the world is just terrible. Everything's just... The church is bad. Everything's as you know, worse as it's ever been. It's like, well, if you actually study history... Uh, you, you you do get a good sense that God is moving through history. He's gathering it to Himself. To me, for me, it's always given me a sort of a just a sense that God is in control. He's building His church. We're just kind of one spot on this you know long timeline of history. No, that that's very well said. I mean, history should more than anything, especially Christian history, provide hope mm-hmm. uh, for the future um, because you see there is nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, the thing that we think is big, bad, and terrible now and destructive mm-hmm. actually is small in comparison to what happened seven years, 700 years ago, mm-hmm. and, uh, or those types of things, or, or, or what someone's espousing as new and novel today mm-hmm. really is just some old heresy repurposed and refashioned yeah. for the present. So it's, it, it, it helps in many ways to provide that strong foundation to weather the storms of the present, for sure. Well, one more question before we go. Um, you've also written and spoke and lectured on, on Carl Henry and kind of his, his idea of cultural engagement. We're, we're kind of an interesting moment in the West, perhaps, even in America, where maybe Christianity is, is less um, affirmed by the broader culture, I'd like to say. A lot of people are you know, fearful of that. I guess what would Carl Henry say to, to today? What would you say to, to, to Christians who are sort of thinking through cultural engagement today? You know, the great, one of the great things about Carl Henry, and again, a lot of what I am as a student of, of your president, Russell Moore, mm-hmm. and his good friend, Greg Thornberry, and them sort of helping stir, re-stir up mm-hmm. an interest in Henry, um, I like to think of him as our once and future theologian. He was evangelicals theologian once in the 20th century. We need not reinvent the wheel, as Greg Thornberry mm-hmm. says. He can be our theologian again, sort of lighting yeah. a path for how to deal with contemporary issues. And one of the ways he he does that is he it's a it's a very strong view of providence mm-hmm. and a high confidence in the Word of God and, and its ability to answer the questions of the day. Mm-hmm. Keep pointing people back to the reliability of the scriptures as a way in which to move forward. And he, you know, has often said, you know, don't be surprised if evangelicalism is, you know, you know, put in the penalty box, so to speak, for a period of time. It may be that be the very, the very thing that this culture needs is for evangelicalism to be shaken up, to be challenged, to be afraid, and therefore to come back relying more and more among, among God and His Spirit, and especially His Word uh, with the Spirit. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Deucing, for joining me today in the podcast. Great conversation. Really encourage folks to check out your books and uh, uh, check out Midwestern Seminaries. Great, great option for theological education. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, I want to thank Dr. Deucing for that great conversation. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you let us know by sending us an email to wayhome at erlc.com or better yet, writing a review on iTunes uh, or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts. If you're interested in other conversations we've had with other guests, uh, please go to my website, danieldarling.com. We have all the podcasts listed there on the podcast page. Also, don't forget to uh, register for Evangelicals for Life, January 21st and 22nd in Washington, D.C., co-hosted with Focus on the Family. We have a special discount for you if you're a Way Home podcast listener. Go to my website, danieldarlin.com, click on the link for Evangelicals for Life, and you can use the coupon code WAYHOME. That's WAYHOME in all caps. Hope to see you in Washington, D.C. But for now, thank you for listening to the Way Home podcast. Mm-hmm.